Let's stand and reverence the reading of God's word. I know you just got settled. You just got comfortable. Although the text we will study today will be verse 16 through 21, I want to start back up in verse 14 through 15 we covered last week because it's the part of the title. The title of the message is A Life Controlled by Love, Part 2. We did part one last week that Paul defended the integrity of his ministry, really because of the love of Christ, right? He defended it so that they would have confidence in the gospel and ministry he shared with them. Now this week, A Life Controlled by Love, Part 2, and the idea is we have been reconciled to reconcile, reconciled to reconcile. We'll pick it up in verse 14. He says, for the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And that he died for all, so that they who live would no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. For though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their transgressions against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So then we are ambassadors for Christ. As God is pleading through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Can we pray another time and just ask God's hand over this message? We, we so need you. Holy Spirit, this is your word. The Holy Spirit inspired the word. You inspired men to write what you wanted written. And now we want to get from this holy word what you've designed it. Let us, let us expose it. Let us expose the text for what did the original recipients mean to understand. Then what are we to understand from the text? God, let us properly expose this text. Let us hold it up. Let us find the meaning Then let's apply the meaning and let us be people who glorify God through gospel-centered disciple-making. God, help us. We need your help with this word this morning. Would you do it? Would you clear out the cobwebs and the fatigue and the distractions and our gadgets in such a way that you would be preeminent during this time? You would be the treasure and focus of our souls. This is a holy moment. It's set apart. God, would you help? I need your help. How would you do this? And God's people said, amen. Amen, amen. So, the, the title of the message is A Life Controlled by Love, Part 2. What has control of us? What can, has control of me? What has control of you? We asked that question last week, and we're still asking that question this week. Who has control? Well, by the way, I have the scooter again this week, and uh, last week we kinda, I kind of rode it around, and, it, and, and I'm not going to ride it around this week 
not because I'm afraid of you laughing at me, right? I just don't want to drive you to coveting to want to drive this thing, right? That's what everybody wants to do. But also the battery's out. So anyways, that's not going to happen. But there's something I can do. Is, do y'all know what this is? A seat? Oh, you're so smart, right? So I'm going to preach this whole message holding this one seat up like this the whole entire time. How awesome would that be? Okay, that's not going to happen, right? <laughs> like, this is the shortest message Nick has ever preached. <laughs> Let it be, Lord, please. Okay, so here's the deal. I showed you last week this, uh, this scooter, and what the, the goal of me showing you this scooter was not just to show off a scooter. The goal was to have this idea, a life controlled by love, by Christ. And the goal that, of, of showing you the scooter was really this idea of, this scooter is going around. This is like our life, right? But the, the real thing is not the scooter itself. It's really what is sitting in the seat is what's really controlling the scooter. So Paul last week talked about Christ and a life controlled by love. It, it had him defend his apostolic ministry, although he, the last thing he would ever want to do. This week, he's talking about how the love of Christ controls this idea of, I've been reconciled to God to reconcile others. Now, when we say reconcile, we're talking about you were enemies and now you're at peace, right? So Paul says, I've been reconciled to God, therefore, I want to reconcile others. Why? Because the love of Christ controls me. Why? Because really, Christ is sitting in the seat. So that's our goal this week. Whatever is sitting in the seat is what is controlling you, right? Whatever's sitting in the seat. By the way, um, Holly pointed this out to me last week. Did any of y'all catch this, the word up here? Did any of y'all catch this? Pride? Um, you know, you, you can get so familiar with something you didn't even see it. So um, maybe, maybe I should have, like, put this over and put Jesus, right? So we'll, we'll do this. Pretend it says Jesus. <laughs> We don't want to promote pride, right? Uh, that already comes naturally. So if you have an outline and you're wanting to look at the outline on the back side of those announcements, um, we'll, we'll take off with point number one of my outline is this idea. Paul's perspective before he was controlled by Christ's love. Before Paul was controlled by Christ's love, oh, he had a perspective. The, the, his life was being controlled. And there was something else in the seat of Paul's life. It wasn't Christ, Right? And let's not be shocked. If someone doesn't have Christ in the seat, their life will not look like anything what the scriptures say, right? Like sometimes even you wonder, why do some people not freely engage and declare the gospel message? Well, because Christ isn't in the seat, but for some people, Christ may have never been in the seat. Paul's this guy. He's never been in the seat of Christ when we, get, when we talk about his life before Christ, right? In verse 16, he says something by the way, this is a very hard verse, and when you read the commentators, they actually disagree with each other on this, but I have an idea of what this passage is saying, and obviously my way is correct. So look at verse 16. He says, Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Some commentators would say what he's saying in verse 16 is this idea of um, we like now we don't have a respect for persons we, um, because Christ has changed us and this is, uh, this is one side that I don't think is a proper interpretation of the text or I don't say proper, I would say I, I don't agree with it. He says even though we've 
known Christ according to the flesh, we now know him no, this way no longer. Some would say he's just simply saying that they knew Christ in his incarnation. He's, not, he's in heaven now. He's not with them. But I don't actually think that's a good explanation. When you look at the whole text, he's actually talking about how he used to view Christ. Right? Before Christ, before the seed of Christ came into his life, before God saved him on that Damascus road, Paul's view of Christ was with man's appearance and not by the heart. He was viewing Christ a certain way. That's why your point number one says Paul's perspective before he was controlled by Christ. And his perspective was he was a persecutor. That's what Paul did. Now, when you look in the text, you find some things. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. What I think he's really saying in the text of this, this idea, when you look at the context, what he's saying is, there was a day that I did know Christ before I knew him as Savior, that I knew him, and I knew him in such a way that I was a persecutor. And that's the way I judged him. That's the way I looked at Christ. Yet, we know him in this way no longer. I no longer view Christ that way. Because obviously I'm not a persecutor, I'm a proclaimer of the gospel. But he makes this point of saying there was a change that happened. In verse 14 and 15, he says the love of Christ controls us. Therefore Christ died, so that they who live would no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again. He says, God did something on the Damascus road to me. Therefore, therefore in verse 16, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Remember, Paul's defending himself against all the false apostles who say because of all his suffering on the outside, God must be cursing him. And Paul's saying, nope, well, there's a different economy. If you look back up in verse 12, he talks about that you want to boast in the heart and not appearance. So he says, no, there's been a work that's inside. Don't listen to these false apostles that are teaching you that because of my suffering, my ministry is not valid. It's valid. What I've told you is valid. The year and a half I spent doing ministry to you is valid. What you have professed in Christ is valid. The resurrection is valid. Please don't give in to this. Now, in verse 16, he's saying that even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. He's talking about this idea of, of I don't know Christ in the way that I used to, because the way I used to, I saw him as someone that I needed to persecute. I was a persecutor. See, the, Paul's old life, he persecuted Christ. In fact, if you're one that likes to write down notes and stuff in this point, you can write a couple things. I mean, let me read for you a couple scriptures of what it talks about Paul's life before Christ came into his life. Acts 8.1, let me read it for you. Now, Saul, that was also Paul's name, but just a side note, we often think that God changed, God, we often, although when God changes people, sometimes he does change their name when he does things. Abram went to Abraham, right? However, Paul didn't, God didn't change his name from Saul to Paul. Actually, Saul was more his Hebrew name. Paul is more his Greek name. You find Luke in, in, Luke, in, Luke, um, in Acts 13, really, as Paul goes to the Gentiles, he now uses his more Gentile name, Paul. Although, it probably is a very fitting way to describe a difference in his life, that during the Saul days, he really was, um, he really was a persecutor. He was a hypocrite. But nonetheless, here's what Acts 8.1 says. Now Saul was consenting to his death. This is the death of Stephen. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. Acts 3, Acts 8, 3. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house, dragging men and women, committing them to prison. That's the guy who's writing this, right? Why would he do that? Because all he knew was Christ according to the flesh back then. He, he, had, he had this idea um, that he had 
he, he looked at the fact that Christ did, said he was God and there was no overthrow of the Roman government. He saw that Christ was hung on a tree. And in the Jewish scriptures of, Hebrew, of Deuteronomy 21, if you were hanged on a tree, that was a punishment considered a curse, right? That was, that was in Deuteronomy 21, verse 23. Paul sees all this and thinks, this guy Jesus cannot be who they say he is. And so I need to protect the integrity of what he actually thinks in the moment. So he begins persecuting the church. He actually thinks he's doing God's, uh, God's business. He's really not. Acts chapter 9, verse 1 through 2, it says, Then Saul, still breathing th- threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus. So if he found anyone who were in the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Paul says of himself in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, I am the least of the apostles. I'm not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. He says in Philippians 3 that he persecuted the church. Acts 22, verse 3 through 4, Paul says that he is one who persecuted the way, those who were following Christ to the death, binding and delivering them to prison, both men and women. Paul says in Acts 26, verse 9 through 11, he says, I cast my vote against them, Christians. I punished them, Christians. And every synagogue compelled them to blasphemy and being exceedingly enraged against them. I persecuted them under foreign cities. Paul was a persecutor. Paul, and, and by the way, you can't think, of course he would do this. He wasn't in the seat of Christ. Christ wasn't controlling him. His hypocritical, pharisaic kind of religion was controlling him. He was trying to earn his righteousness by his own works and not by what Christ has done. So we see in verse 16 when he says this idea, Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. He's saying, that's, I'm different now. That's, I used to actually regard people according to the flesh. And it just, you know, two plus two is four. If Jesus really was who he said he was, he wouldn't have died on a tree, on a cross, and he would have overthrown Rome and been this conquering king. He wasn't that. He must have been false. Therefore, I was doing the only thing that I knew how to do. But he's saying, now this is different. We don't regard according to the flesh because God makes a change. We'll get to that here in a minute. He says, for even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, there was a time when he looked at Christ according to his flesh, um, according to his old man nature, before Christ saved him on the Damascus road. Yet now we know him in this way no longer. That's no longer are they viewing Christ that way. Now why is Paul no longer viewing Christ that way? Because something has changed, right? Something has changed. Paul's went from persecutor to proclaimer, from unbeliever to believer, from unsaved to saved, to running against Christ and running with Christ, from trying to stop the spread of the gospel to spreading the gospel. There was a change. Something happened. Now, before I talked about that change in verse 17, we're still on point number one here. Um, what's interesting is Paul could never evaluate Christ rightly till. Christ was in his life. All that was controlling his life, he had an inaccurate perception of until he actually sat in the seat of Christ. Oh, things were controlling Paul, but it wasn't Christ. But once Christ was controlling Paul, he looked at things totally different, a totally different perspective. Even when you read this book, I'm telling you, most people would have already given up on the Corinthians at this point, right? Have you ever helped somebody so much 
for them only to talk bad about you behind your back? I know that's never happened to any of you, right? Never happened. No one's ever done that. That's what's going on. And Paul, yet in the midst of that, he's saying, would you just open your heart to me? Uh, Let me defend the ministry I've done to you for the glory of God and your good. How could a person do that? Because there has to be something that has changed inside of you. By the way, just a side note. Paul, in the past, had judged Christ unfit by the merits of what he saw on the outside. To Paul, a first century monotheistic Jew, any man who died on a tree, on a cross, and any man who didn't do exactly what he thought, like he thought that he was going to, the Messiah was supposed to overthrow the Roman government. So Paul was just doing what naturally any Jew would do. He, he thought he had an accurate evaluation of the situation. It was only later that he began to realize that, oh, wait a minute, after God saved him, it changed his whole entire perspective. No wonder sometimes, how many evaluations have we made about other people and situations that are probably inaccurate because we were looking with the eyes of man and not the heart of God? And it wasn't until Paul was saved that he started to have the ability to do that. Now, it was interesting. There's so many reasons I would tell you today why to get saved, why to bow the knee, trust Jesus as Lord and King. He did it for me at 16. He can do it for you at 40, at 45, at 23. He can do it at 11. Let me just give you one of many reasons. Paul could not assess things, relationships rightly until Christ saved him. I mean, do you you think in life that everybody is against you? You have this idea that that there's a constant pessimism, a constant negativity, a um, a constant worry that people... Are, are angling at you. And they may be, but many times they're not. We think the worst about people sometimes, although all people are fallen sinners. And, and I'll tell you one of the things that will rescue you from that, Christ. See, when you're sitting, when Christ has control, when the love of Christ controls you and he's sitting in the seat, you can even evaluate right. By the way, as a follower of Christ, let us also be careful Every time when something bad happens to somebody on the outside, sometimes we'll think things like, well, what have they done wrong, right? We think God equals all this, like if anything bad happens on the outside, that must mean you must have done something wrong. Now, is there sometimes a place for that? Sure. But man, I think God's people ought to be very careful before we hurl those kind of accusations against people. Because we're really, truly, we don't know all that God is doing sometimes. Even, even there's a scary thing in the text for me that Paul had a time where the very Son of God, he had an inaccurate perception of what God was doing, and he was full out acting on his inaccurate perception. Oh, what a, what a warning to, to be in Christ. And I would say this, what a warning to be so walking in the seat of Christ that we're doing what the rest of the text. And I will tell you, People that do the rest, those who are in Christ, who do the rest of this text, they are typically people that do not get it wrong when it comes to the outward motivations of other people, right? And Because typically those people are so focused on the mission of God that they aren't sitting around complaining about the problems that they see in everybody else. Let me get back to this. Those who are on mission for God typically don't have enough time to focus on how they think everybody in life is shortchanging them. There's a kind of a country saying, but you've probably heard it before, but uh, a dog on the hunt doesn't know that he has fleas. You ever heard that before? A dog on the hunt doesn't know he has fleas. 
If a dog that has fleas is still, what is he going to do? Scratch, itch, scratch, itch. But there's a squirrel in the backyard. What's that dog going to do? Is he going to stop mid-stride and go, ooh, I got to itch something. Ooh, I got a problem. Is he going to stop mid-stride? No, he's not. Because at that point, the, the flea doesn't have a priority in his life. Just as an applicational idea for God's people. The evaluations we're making about so many people around us in our life, if we but make sure we're sitting in the seat of Christ, the love of Christ would control us, and we'd be more focused on getting out the Word of God to people that don't know God's Word than sitting around complaining about how we think everybody is living wrong or doing wrong or not treating us rightly. I'm not meaning for God's people to overlook sin. What I'm saying is, Sometimes a dog on the hunt doesn't know he has fleas. I mean, Paul's a, he's on the hunt. I mean, is he negating all that the Corinthians have done to him? No, but that isn't stopping him from doing them. I mean, he doesn't give it up. In fact, he goes in here and he says, hey, I just want to encourage you with something. Not only for you, for us, God has called us to reconcile the world. The world. It's, he's not even focused on the Corinthians only. God has given us a mission. I'm too busy hunting down Hunting down the next treasure to be scratching around on things. I love it. Now, go to point number two. So Paul's perspective before he was controlled by Christ's love, he was a persecutor. But here's what God's in the business of doing. He's, ta- he's in the business of taking someone from persecutor to proclaimer. And know so much more as you go to verse 17. Now we're on point number two if you're a person who's following an outline. Point number two is Paul's perspective now that he is controlled by Christ's love. God saved Paul and changed Paul. If you're saved, God has changed you. Are you saved here this morning? If you're saved, would you just thank God today? Today's a great day for you. Let me, if you're saved here today, let me tell you why it's a great day for you. Because what's the worst thing that could happen to you today? What's the worst? You're allowed to say it. What could be the worst thing for you personally? It begins with a D. Death. That'd be the worst thing that could happen to you today. And guess what? You'd still win. If you're saved, this is a good day. The worst you could get is death, and death would be an enormously great Labor Day weekend for you. I'm not saying to go out and do something stupid this weekend, right? I am telling you this. This is a good day for all of us. If If you are in Christ, if you're not in Christ, friend, like, get this settled today. Man, I mean, call out to the Lord before we take communion here in a little bit and take it with us. Now, watch what he says in verse 17. Paul's perspective, now that he is controlled by Christ's love. Now that he's sitting, Christ is controlling Paul because Christ is now in the seat of Paul's life. Verse 17, Paul says this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. So Paul has a a new perspective now that he's controlled by Christ's love. And if you're looking at 2A on your outline, the seat of Christ changes everyone in him. The seat of Christ changes everyone in him. Now that Paul's in Christ, God's work has changed him. He's a new creation. He's something new. Old things have passed away. When you become a Christian, God so changes you because many things. One is your sins are now forgiven. Uh, you, You are no longer guilty. Christ bore the guilt for you. 
Not only that, you have something living inside you called the Holy Spirit, right? It's called the Holy Spirit. It's a spirit that is what? Holy, right? If the Holy Spirit is living inside you, the most normal thing for the, someone who has the Spirit is to live a life that is what? Holy, right? This changes a person. This brings transformation. If you're in Christ, although you may, may not emotionally feel like you're a new person in Christ, you are. Don't let feelings fool you on this, right? If you've named Christ, if Christ is yours, if you trusted in the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, you are a new creation. Now you may, you might not realize you are, but you are. You may not feel like you are, but you are. It's kind of like this. When, um, when slavery was outlawed in America, there were many slaves who continued to be slaves for quite a season. And the reason they continued to be slaves for quite a season is they didn't know that they were emancipated. They just had not heard the news. They didn't know. That's so many people who bow the knee, come to Christ, trust Him as Savior, and they live like they're still a slave. And they're actually free. So Paul says, no, no. Therefore, he was in Christ. He's a new creation. Old things, old things have passed away, but all things have become new. If you're in Christ... You're no longer an alcoholic. I'm sorry. By the way, I love some of the ministry of things like, like AA as far as the accountability, but there's some things I have a problem with, things like AA in this sense and other kind of things that descend from AA. You have to keep getting up each week and you have to say, hey, I'm Nick the alcoholic or I'm Nick this kind of addict or I'm Nick this kind of addict, right? But in Christ, you are a new what? A new creation. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, in such were some of you. In fact, that's, I love the accountability that things like AA bring, but I hate the theology that it, it promotes. And one of the ways it promotes is this idea of looking like you have grave clothes on when you have grace clothes on now. You're a different person. If you're in Christ here this morning, I can tell you, you are a new creation in Christ. Now, you may have not reconciled it. You may have not looked at the bank account yet. But friends, once you take a look at the bank account and you know you are, know you are a new creation, how do we even know this from Paul's life? Look, I read for you earlier some of the ways he was persecuting. He went from a persecutor to a proclaimer. You don't make that kind of shift in life, life unless Christ is in you. That same life, that same Holy Spirit that changed Paul is the same Holy Spirit that is changing us. And I love that he says, Therefore, in verse 17, Therefore, if anyone's in Christ. Are you in Christ today? If you're not in Christ, I would invite you. Hey, come to Christ. I, I sometimes think, what would happen if God wouldn't have saved me at 16 years of age? I, sometimes it's just fearful. What would the direction of my life look like? What, where would I be at this moment? How would, how would my family look? How would life around me? Would there be any lives changed? Would, what would it look like? Where would I be finding joy and treasure? It's the scariest thought I've had in a long time is when I think, what if Christ wouldn't have saved me? It changed everything in my life. Although I don't, I don't want to like point out anybody, but um, you know, uh, I don't like to embarrass people. But I got a friend here today uh, that came with me, and um, we've been friends for life. His name's Michael, and um, one of our guests here today. And I can tell you this: um, he saw me before Christ. He saw he was there at the same time as I was coming to Christ. He was coming to Christ in the same season. I would be scared to know where would I be today 
if I wouldn't be made a new creation in Christ. If you're not in Christ, then you're missing out something. You're missing. If you are in Christ, we're meant to be controlled by him. And the question is this, have you, are you sitting in the seat? Because it's the most natural thing to do. Most natural thing for a person to do is sit in the seat of Christ. Paul's saying, I'm a new, I'm a new creation. All, everyone who's in Christ is a new creation. You are not what you used to be. You're a different person. What, what now God has called us to do is to live practically what he has already made us positionally. Christ has, has bore the wrath of God for our sin, then offered up his righteous life in, in replacement, and then put it on our account. We are now to live practically what we already are positionally in Christ. Man, he's made us new. Are you new today? Are you a new creation? If you're in Christ, you are. Old things have passed away. You are not what you used to be in your sin. So Paul's perspective in point two is that the seat of Christ changes everyone in him. And to be on your outline, the seat of Christ commissions everyone in him. So if, if, if the seat of Christ changes everyone, the seat of Christ also commissions everyone. Look in verse 18. On verse 18. He says in verse 18, Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ. Let me just ask a question. Who's doing the work of reconciling us to Christ? Is it us or is it him? Him. He does the work. Now, if you look at point number 2B, and there's a 1 there, it says, because God did the work of reconciliation. So, this was really just paradoxical sometimes. The seed of Christ, he commissions everyone in him, and, and really, because he did all the work already. He's done the work. He's the one that has reconciled us. Look back at your text, verse 19. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their transgressions against them. Christ is the active agent in salvation. He is the one that is doing the work. It's his sinless life that accomplished what our sinful life never could. Therefore, Paul says he's commissioning everybody to go about and tell about this wonderful work of reconciliation, this wonderful thing of being God's enemy. Now you can be a friend of God. And then underneath that, you see on your outline, because God has given us the work of reconciliation. So the seed of Christ commissions everyone because God did the work. But then because God did the work, now he sends us to do the work. Look back at verse 18, and as you're looking at verse 18, notice this. All these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and he has gave us the, what does it say in the text? The ministry of reconciliation. So God did the work of reconciliation, but really, at this moment, God has called us to be an extension of bringing that out. He's given us the ministry of reconciliation. That word ministry is the word that we get for deacon. It's a, it's a word that means a deacon, a servant, a table server. Some of us this morning may go, I don't know if I have a ministry to do for Christ. Everybody is in this ministry. Did you know that? Everybody in here who is named Christ is ordained to this gospel reconciliation ministry. It is the perspective when, the, when Christ is controlling you. It's the natural thing that you do. It's what you do as a result of what Christ has done. He says in verse 18, he gave us this ministry of reconciliation. Notice, keep looking at verse 19. He says this, real, look again, verse 19. That God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their transgressions against them. Now look at this. And he has committed to who? To us. 
the word of reconciliation. So God has given us not only the ministry, but also the means wherewith to do it, the word of reconciliation. He has given us not only the scriptures as the word, he's given us the declaration of the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. He's given us the declaration that he has died for our sins according to scripture and that he has risen from the dead, justifying you to know that God accepted his sacrifice. God has given us the word of reconciliation. God has given us the mouth of reconciliation. God has called us to declare the good news of the gospel. I love this. Man, it's so, so good that God would tell this. Now look at this word, this committed to us, the word of reconciliation. This word committed has the idea of to put, to place, to lay. Kind of think like a blanket being laid over you, right? God has laid this ministry of reconciliation on us. He has laid the word of God so we could give this ministry to others. It's not the job of just a ministry person to declare the good news of Jesus. It's all of our, it's all of our place. By the way, here's a prayer that I think God will, will answer and honor for all of us. Could we put on the top of our prayer list every day, God, would you give someone who doesn't know Jesus, would you let me tell someone who doesn't know him today? And if I try to tell someone who doesn't know him and they end up knowing him, let me share with them how, how to actually share the gospel. And if you get nobody in a day to share the gospel with, or you try, you try to share the gospel, but you end up, they end up being a Christian, and, and, and then you don't get to share how to share with them, how to share the gospel, then do this. With your own family, just gather around that evening and just go, I didn't get to share the gospel with anybody, but if you don't practice, you won't play. And so can I just practice sharing the gospel with you? And I'm telling you, if every day of your life, Every day of our life, if we will in some way practice sharing the gospel with those who already believe it or with those that don't, something changes in our heart and life. And all of a sudden, before you know it, we are, we are doing more than hovering around the seat. We are sitting in the seat. And Christ is controlling us in such a way that the judgments we make in life are really living for his glory. We're living it out exactly as God has designed it in his word. How will we know that God's really doing that kind of a work? Well, I'll show you. I'm glad you asked. Man, y'all ask great questions. Look at C on your outline. The seat of Christ compels everyone in him. The seat of Christ compels everyone in him. Look at verse 20. So Paul knew that God had changed him, and because God had changed him, gave him a ministry, the very thing that Paul experienced inwardly, through the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. He wants others to have that same. He wants them to know Jesus. And God has done such a work. I mean, Paul has shared and given his life to sharing, has given his life to training others to share, and has given his life to this work of salvation and discipleship, has so been about trying to take those who are hostile to God and enemies of God to having peace with God. He has worked that so much in his life that you can see the fruit of it that Christ is sitting in the seat of control of his life in such a way he is compelled to tell people about the gospel. He is compelled by this ministry. This is not just an apostolic thing only. He is compelled to do this as a follower. Look in verse 20. So then we are ambassadors for Christ. By the way, if you are an ambassador for a nation, you represent that nation, right? You speak on behalf of that nation to another foreign nation. Is that a, is that a high place of prominence or is that kind of like, well... We just found any Joe Schmo here to do this. Is an ambassador usually someone who 
is privileged and has, I mean, just a lot of importance in the kingdom. Yeah. Isn't this amazing? The fact that God has put you in Christ, has given you his word and his resources, and has called us to the ministry of reconciliation, of giving out the gospel so that the enemies of God can become friends of God. is just amazing. It's such a precious ministry that we are called to be ambassadors of him. We are visual representatives of his heavenly kingdom. We, we are representatives, ambassadors. We hold a high position. This isn't some optional thing that we get to do when we feel like it or when life falls into place. We're never too busy to be ambassadors for Christ. If we're too busy, then we're not prioritizing. We're not trusting God. God has called us to this. So then we are ambassadors for Christ. By the way, I'm telling you all this stuff. Do, do we do realize that when I preach to you, does anybody have any idea who I'm really preaching to sometimes? I'm preaching to myself, right? He says this. And by the way, this section we're going to read, this really gets, gets on me. I, I don't like it, but I love it. Because I can tell you, when you share the gospel regularly, when you're sitting in that seat of obedience in Christ, the love of Christ is controlling you, you'll do verse 20. But when he's not, you won't do verse 20. Notice what he says in verse 20. Man, this, this rips at my soul, and I have to ask myself, I don't know if I do a lot of this, to be honest with you. I don't know if I've seen a lot of people do this, to be all honest. Look what he says in verse 20. So then we are ambassadors for Christ... As God is what? Pleading through us. Pleading through us. As God is using us to plead with you to come to Christ, we, what does he say? We beg you. We beg you. That word beg has the idea of we pray, we ask, we urge, we are begging and pleading. I have to say, I don't, I don't know if I've done enough of that with people sometimes. I, I'd be honest with you, sometimes, I mean, there have been some people I will pray so fervently for they come to Christ. I mean, I've done that. But I don't think I do that enough in life that, the, that, that I am so controlled by the love of Christ that I am begging and pleading in prayer, even with them. Paul right here. We have this silly thing. I think we got to get out of the way of like, well, I can't offend people by telling them the good news. Why can't you? Like, why can't you? It's good news. Let me tell you, if you had the cure for cancer right now, if you, had, if you could put the cure for cancer in a bottle, right, and your family member had cancer, would you go, hey, I've I've got something in this bottle that can cure your cancer, but, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid to offend you if I tell you about it. Would we do that? No. With, with an unhypocritical heart, looking at the beings of our own sin, we would urge them and plead them like, I have an answer for you. I know you don't want to hear this, but would you just give me your ear for a minute? Can I just tell you something good? Do you want to hear good news? By the way, there's one guy I was um, witnessing one time, and that's actually how he started his witnessing. He would say, you want to hear some good news? Anybody want to hear some good news? Anybody want to hear some good news? That's actually the literal meaning of the gospel. It's the proclaiming of the good news. 
But look at this text. He says, I beg you. Uh, God is pleading through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. A pleading, a begging, an urging. Huh. God, may it be. I can say this. I, I really think if you want to kind of go, man, am I sitting in the seat of Christ? Does Christ's love really control me? We'll be witnessing to people, to, be, to bring in, in, take in enemies of God. We'll be witnessing. We'll see it as our ministry, our deacon ministry. But not only that, there'll be this urging and pleading from our prayer life to when we actually interact with the person. And, and, and instead of being fearful of what they may say about us or to us, we'll be more fearful for what God would for the wrath of God that would come out in them someday. We'd be more fearful of being obedient to the Lord. We'd be so controlled by the seat of Christ, by, by, sit, by Christ sitting in the seat of control of our life. Now we end with verse 21. Oh, verse 21. If you're kind of a person that, by the way, is, didn't y'all find it hard to memorize things, right? Is it hard to memorize things? Man, if there's one scripture in life I'd tell you to memorize, it'd be this scripture right here. Memorize verse 21, friend. If there's like one thing you could ever just go like, okay, I'll memorize the scripture. Friend, memorize verse 21. This is the best text to memorize. Ah, it's so good. You could do a whole message on this one. He made him, verse 21, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. They call this the glorious exchange. At 16, this is what happened for me. My sin for his righteousness. I couldn't save myself. I, I love this. this. This shows us that Christ never sinned, but sin was put on his account so that the glorious exchange could be happening so that we could be made righteous in God. I am righteous in God because of his work. When on the cross, when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was, he was telling us that the wrath, he took the wrath of God in our place. He bore it. And then at the end, when he says it is finished, it means he offered up his righteous life in the place of our unrighteous life. You are righteous in Christ because of him. This is the glorious exchange. You know, there's been some bad things happen in life. For instance, the bubonic plague. They say somewhere between 75 and 100 million people died from what they call the Black Death, the bubonic plague. Can you imagine that? 75 to 100 million people died from that plague. That's enormous. Over 60 million babies have died from the plague of abortion. From things like, from, from things like flus, right? There's been several different flus have killed people. Like, when you look at all the flus that have gone through, um, man, sometimes you'll see like 17 to 20 million people die from several common flus. Even as this last couple years, you have COVID-19. Now, no matter what you believe in statistics, I, I get all that, but there were several million. I've got personal friends that did actually die. Man, just terrible diseases, terrible things. Man, it's dangerous to live, isn't it? It's dangerous to breathe air. But you know, <laughs> this is very true. It's a little bit more dangerous not to breathe air. My suggestion for you today is breathe air, right? <laughs> What'd you get from church? Breathe. <laughs> some terrible plagues, some terrible diseases, but those aren't the worst disease ever. You know the worst disease ever? It's our sin, isn't it? Yeah, that's the worst disease ever. 
That's the one that will actually choke the air out of you. That's the one that will cause you not to breathe. That's the worst thing ever. Verse 21. I'm convinced of this. If verse 21 is impacting our soul, we have, then we'll have, we, we can do nothing else but, let me make sure I put this seat back on. Let's close it. I don't want to see the pride, right? You can do nothing else but sit in the seat of Christ and let his love control you and be a minister of reconciliation, give out the word of reconciliation, that beg and plead from our prayers to the things we say to people, that they would come to Christ. We would be willing to risk embarrassment. We'd be, it, none of it would really matter if we could truly get the idea that the greatest plague that has ever come to man is the wrath of God that's going to come against his sin. The greatest plague is when Adam and Eve fell in the garden, when Adam rebelled against God and the DNA of, of sin has passed on to us. We are guilty at birth and that in Christ, the glorious exchange can happen. It changes us to being controlled by his love. It changes us. It becomes the priority of our life. And when Christ is the priority of our life, his word and getting the good news out is the priority of our life. And when that happens, life actually looks in such a way that it's been designed. And we, become, we start to realize our new creation in Christ. You're a new creature in Christ if you're saved. And you may wonder, when will I start to see this new creation? Oh, friend, start begging and pleading for the souls of lost men. And you'll start to realize and grow up and get sanctified and realizing what you already have in Christ, that new person. In fact, I would tell you, you can't help but do nothing but that. That's what you want to do. Would you stand to your feet? Our worship team is going to come. And as our worship team comes, um, while we sing, we're going to be passing out communion. We're not doing the family meal today, obviously. As a, you know, we, we don't do it on holiday weekends, but the communion element is going to be passed along as we're singing. And, and let me encourage you, if you're in Christ, this communion is for you. If you're not in Jesus, then if you're not saved, if you're not a Christian, communion is not for you, my friend. And I would say this, if you're in Christ and you are in open hostility to God with no conviction and repentance, if you're in open unforgiveness from the heart towards someone else, then communion's not for you. And that's a good thing because we take it every week because we want, we want us to be confronted with the forgiveness of Christ that extends to others. So this isn't for you, but let, let if, the, if the communion has to pass you by, let it be a point of of seeing that we forgive as Christ has forgiven us, then, we can, then you can focus on sitting in the seat of Christ. Would you pray with me? What a holy time we've now come to. We're going to take the Lord's Supper. The juice and the bread, it's not sacred itself. What it symbolizes is, oh, bring someone to Jesus right now. A prayer like this is what brought me to Christ. Let me pray it for you. If you're, maybe you're not in Christ, you're here. You've never trusted Christ as Lord and Savior. I just want to pray this prayer. And you can pray it in your own soul with me. If you can believe it and mean it, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, the scriptures say. It goes something like this. This is something what I prayed years ago. Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I've broken your commandments. I've lusted. I've lied. I've dishonored my parents. 
I'm a sinner. I deserve your judgment. I deserve your wrath. But thank you for taking the judgment and wrath of God in my place. I trust you. I trust in your work. I trust what you did on the cross for my sins. Come into my life. Come to my heart. Save me. Thank you for saving me. Let me live for you now. And maybe you're here and maybe you've never prayed a prayer like that that you meant. And maybe you did now. I would encourage you. Tell someone about it today. Tell someone. Someone needs to help you take the next step of obedience. Can I pray for us as we close out? Father, for the rest of us, we sure need your help with this one. How much is Christ controlling us? We will see it in how much we declare the gospel to those who aren't in Christ, to those that need to be trained in Christ. God, would you create a holy passion and zeal like we see in the text. May we be overwhelmed with this great exchange that we can do nothing but plead and beg lost people to come to him. God, would you do it? May the love of Christ control us. God's people said, Amen.